Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Derek Abbott. He's a professor at the University of Adelaide. He's uh, the director of the Center for Biomedical Engineering. And we're going to talk about uh, biologically inspired engineering. So, Derek, thanks for coming. Thank you very much. So, if you would, tell me about your work. Okay, so my background is uh, I did uh, both uh, physics and uh, electrical engineering. And... um, Electrical engineers are interesting beasts because they're trained to do a number of things, you know, look at data uh, and mine that data, uh, everything from there through to designing circuits, et cetera, et cetera. And um, in that vast uh, span of capabilities of an electrical engineer, if you look around, uh, say, hospitals and medical institutions you know everything is electronic all the diagnostic equipment etc etc and so uh, where does that all come from that comes from electrical engineers so electrical engineers um, uh, the particular branch that i've gotten into is um, very deep into what's called biomedical engineering Uh, and so it's bridging the fields of electrical engineering um, with uh, medicine and biology. And so um, as, as an engineer, one can actually uh, try and tackle some uh, tricky problems uh, to do with uh, biology and medicine. Um, a good example is uh, DNA, uh, because DNA contains a lot of information and uh, the whole, the the area of bioinformatics, which is to kind of uh, mine through that information and extract what you need from the DNA. Um, the skills of a computer scientist or electri- electrical engineer are very important uh, for creating, um, say, the software and the techniques uh, that are involved in doing that. So, um, uh, yes, it may seem counterintuitive, but uh, engineering does have a lot to do with medicine these days. So what, uh, what in particular that you're working on did you want to discuss and go into detail about? Uh, so I thought we were going to discuss the Summerton Man case, which is a particular project I work on and uh, is quite engaging and interesting. Yeah, what's the background of it? Tell me. It's not like okay. built down man and all, is it? It's a different dance. Just, no, no, no. So, uh, so you haven't re- obviously haven't read anything about it. Okay. So one... Interesting example of a project I've been working on some years now, more than 10 years, is the case of the so-called Summerton Man. What this is, is it's a man that was found deceased um, in 1948 in Australia. He was just lying on the beach. Uh, He looked like in his early 40s, was wearing a nice suit. And uh, he was found one morning and he was just dead. the body was dry. There wasn't a scratch on him. There was no signs of any violence. And to this day, 
no one knows how he actually died and what his identity is. So it's um, been a long mystery um, and it's um, engaged uh, the world uh, um, through uh, means of uh, modern communications and internet this story has really gotten out there and um, uh, people are curious as to who this guy possibly could be and where he came from and so I decided about 10 years or so ago to put my skills as an engineer um, also with biomedical engineering to have a look at this case and see if I could tease out some information so to tell the story of this case, so the audience know why it's so fascinating, is this man was found on the beach. Police took him away. He was uh, sent to a mortuary. He had an autopsy. The autopsy couldn't find any traces of poison at the time or anything like that, because that's what they suspected, uh, as there wasn't any sign of any violence. But nothing was found. And... Uh, they thought, okay, uh, somebody will come forward and identify this guy, uh, a missing family, uh, a family member that's found him missing or something like that. And they waited and waited and, you know, month, two months goes by and, and there's nothing. So they're beginning to realize that, hey, this is uh, possibly a stranger from out of town and no one's coming forward. So the, the mystery thickens, uh, the police using the hypothesis that he's from out of town, go and check the uh, locker room in the local station uh, where interstate trains come. And they found, they found in the luggage room, they, they find um, an unclaimed case uh, from uh, that's date stamped the date that uh, the date before he was found dead. So the timing was, was beautiful. They opened up the case, uh, found some clothes and effects, and um, the clothes fit the man, and there was some uh, thread in there, and it was exactly the same unusual colored thread that was used to sew some of his buttons on his jacket. So the police decided that this uh, case was definitely his, but it didn't lead anywhere. And so they got another pathologist to look over the case to see if there was anything missing. And a guy called Bert Cleland, who also worked at my university back in, those, in the 40s, he was assigned to the case and he noticed one small thing that was missed and that inside the man's fob pocket was a tiny bit of rolled up paper. Uh, and on it, it had the words, printed, not handwritten, uh, printed, uh, tamam should. And um, no one knew what that meant at the time, but um, uh, eventually someone came forward and said, oh, yes, this is the, the last words in the book of poetry called the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. And, um, yeah, so it's weird. <laughs> so... Uh, so they thought, okay, so this has been torn out of the book. So uh, this is like a one in a million chance. They decided to advertise this in the local paper. And they said, you know, has anybody got a copy of the Rubaiyat with the back page torn out? Please hand it into the police station. And I think they got something like two or three people hand in copies. And it turned out that one of them was the right one. Uh, there was a match. And... Um, 
what was interesting about this copy that was handed in, uh, they, they asked the guy, where did this come from? And he said, oh, I just about, you know, this is six months now after the death. And he says, oh, about six months ago, um, I just found it, you know, uh, in my car. And don't forget in those days in the 40s, people, you know, left their cars unlocked and windows down and things like that. And so it's almost like a passerby had just tossed it through, tossed it into the car. But it was in the guy's came. pocket? Like, like, was he wearing a suit? Or So we're talking about the guy who found the book in his car. Oh, but I thought you said the body himself, the guy that was dead, uh, he had this message on his person. Oh, he had, yes. So this tiny piece of rolled up paper with the words Tamam should, Bert Cleland, the pathologist, found it in rolled up and tightly jammed down his fob pocket of his trousers. So for those who don't know what a fob pocket is, is it's a tiny little slit that's in the band of your trousers. And uh, in the old days, this was used to put your fob watch. But uh, we still have these fob pockets today. And uh, uh, in modern trousers, if you look carefully in men's trousers, and uh, most guys don't even know it's there and don't use it. And some people use it to put a coin in or something like that. So, um, but anyhow, uh, this piece of paper was found. They realized it was from the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. So they advertised that in the paper. And then two or three people came forward with books they had found with the back page torn out. And uh, one of them turned out to be the right one. The police had carefully examined the the uh, torn out piece of paper with the suspected correct book. And they found that the texture and weight of the paper exactly matched. And uh, the words were torn out of the right place in the book. So uh, they were convinced they had found the right book. And the guy that handed it in um, said that it was tossed into his car six months earlier. So, and six months earlier at the time was when the man was found dead. And in those days, it wouldn't be that unusual because in the 40s in Australia, people just left their cars unlocked and the windows down and things like that. So it's a bit strange. Uh, that was a one in a million chance that this book came forward. Uh, now, the interesting thing in the book is it had some strange incoherent letters written, penciled in on the back and some phone numbers. And the police at the time uh, thought maybe this is some World War II, Cold War, uh, uh, some World War II kind of spy code or something like that, because they were just like jumbled up letters. That, that's how it looked. But no one could crack the meaning of these letters. And, um, and there was a phone number there as well. And that phone number led to a local lady who lived uh, literally five minutes walk from where he was found dead on the beach. They interviewed her and she claimed no knowledge of the uh, man. She said she didn't know who it was. And uh, But the police noticed she was a little bit evasive. They didn't, the, the case was never treated as a homicide. They always thought it was some kind of suicide. And so she was not pushed any further because... Um, it, was, it wasn't a homicide they were looking at. So she yeah. was uh, left alone, even though they noticed uh, she, her behavior was a little strange and evasive. And they kind of suspected she knew who this guy was. 
but she wasn't sane. So uh, as an engineer, when I read about this case um, back in um, the 90s uh, for the first time, I thought to myself, you know, this, this is really interesting. As an engineer, I would like to look at these strange letters on the back of the book and see if we can work out something about them. I didn't feel that um, I would necessarily be able to crack what they mean, but I was thinking I could at least eliminate what they're not. So because engineers um, are into things like cryptography, you, you know, um, when you do banking transactions and things like that, you have to encrypt the information and also in computers when you transmit information. So we, we, as engineers, we know about that kind of stuff. So, so I thought, okay, what we will do, uh, I'll set this as a project for some of my students. And, uh, and it was around, um, it was around 2007. I started doing this, started looking at this code and setting it as a project for my students. And we eliminated a whole bunch of things. So we, we looked at all the kind of ciphers that were used around World War II and before, and we were able to write computer programs and do statistical analysis to show that these sequ sequence of letters didn't, weren't any of these kinds of codes. And our statistical analysis showed that it was most likely uh, simply the first letters of words in the English language. So uh, it's almost like um, uh, an aide de memoir, if you like, um, just uh, using first letters of words. So what those could mean could, could be absolutely anything. Um, so I kind of uh, dropped uh, looking at that any further and I decided that what was really interesting about this case because it had engaged me by then was finding the man's identity and trying to dig into that further because um, to me it seemed that finding how he died uh, was a little bit out of the question now so many years later. Well did um, they uh, did they do it they didn't do an autopsy on him back in the day right they just buried him. If you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, as I said at the beginning, he had an autopsy, but they were unable to determine if there was a poison and they were unable to determine if any cause of death. So They had no, uh, no suggestions at all? They couldn't... Uh, did they do any photographs? No autopsy photographs. The only photographs they took were of his face so that they could be sent to the press so that uh, uh, published in newspapers so that in case anybody could identify him. So back in those days, they weren't really big on doing autopsy photos as such. Yeah. Uh, is another, the body uh, exhumable or is the body gone? Uh, the body is uh, buried in a cemetery here in Adelaide and it's still here today. And so it is potentially exhumable. Though uh, the state that I'm living in is fairly conservative when it comes to giving approvals uh, for things like exhumations. So it's very difficult uh, getting an exhumation here, say, compared to America. We're, we're way more conservative. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, uh, so there's an issue there. So what I did is I looked into uh, the guy's effects and uh, it seemed 
to me uh, that the police had reported that the man had a jacket that he was wearing that had stitching that was only producible by machines that were in America at the time, not, um, not in Australia. We didn't have those at the time. So that was an interesting bit of information. And the police said the man had an aluminum comb uh, that was only associated with um, US troops at the time uh, that were in Australia. So that, that was interesting. But the, the, those two items aren't really enough just to say, hey, this guy's American, but it's an interesting clue. And so I looked at his effects further and I noticed something strange about his tie that he was wearing, which is in the, his photo, it, which is still shown in his photo and that his stripes of his tie go the opposite direction to the way um, striped ties slant in Australia. Um, and I looked this up because I had no idea what this meant. And I looked up the history of ties, and this was quite interesting. I found that um, the UK and Australia traditionally had striped ties going, striping in the direction what is called heart to sword. So your sword is uh, on the right side of your body, usually, because most people are right-handed, and your heart is on the left, so the stripes go in that direction. And oh. then I read that stripes go in the opposite direction in America, and this tradition started around the 1920s in America, because in the 20s, America started to import Thai fabric from the UK and decided to cut the ties in the opposite direction to be more distinctive from uh, what was the traditions of England to, to separate from them. And so when you look at old photos of US presidents, um, they always have uh, striped ties uh, going in the opposite direction to what we do, except for your latest president, President Donald. <laughs> he has stripes going the wrong way, which is very unusual for a president. I noticed uh, every every single uh, uh, TV item that he's been on, he's had stripes going the wrong way, except for this latest presidential debate with Biden. He suddenly has stripes going the correct American way now, <laughs> uh, which is interesting. Anyway, that's a, that's a, that's a sidetrack. So, okay. uh, so this uh, kind of making me think, oh, hmm, could this guy be American? So it was interesting. So then the next thing I did was I... Um, I looked carefully at the um, the inquest, which which is reported, and uh, we still have that today. I, I should mention that um, the poetry book and the autopsy report, all these things have been lost now through the passage of time. The only thing that actually exists uh, still today is uh, at least the court inquest transcript. And um, in that transcript, it basically, the, the, when the pathologist is giving evidence, he basically says that the man's in, uh, lateral incisors, that's these teeth that are next between your canine teeth and your central teeth, he says he said they're missing. But he says, he then adds, if the man were to smile, you wouldn't notice any gaps. So what that means is that um, it's symmetrical, that is both lateral incisors, and there's no gaps. So this is suggestive of the fact that perhaps uh, his teeth had grown like that. So it's not like he lost them because the there were no gaps. 
So okay. I spoke to a dental dental experts at my university and they said yes this is a rare condition people do do uh, grow up with missing teeth um, and to have uh, two uh, symmetrically opposite ones like that the lateral incisors both missing with no gaps is is quite unusual it's quite rare yeah, what causes uh, it is there any particular reason it's a genetic thing. So this is then what uh, st struck my curiosity. I thought, aha, if it's hereditary, this is a very useful bit of information. So so then, so I put that piece of information aside and then uh, I noticed something else about the man's photo. I noticed his, there was something strange about his ears, but I couldn't put my finger on it. I didn't know how to articulate what was wrong with his ears. So I went to an anatomist at my university who happens uh, just by luck to be an expert on ears of all things. And, and I said to him, um, these ears, uh, I said, this doesn't look right. Uh, can you, uh, what is the correct words uh, in anatomy to, to talk about these ears? And he said, yes, you're right. Um, the years are very rare and it is an hereditary tray. And uh, he said the way to uh, talk about it is he says that the upper hollow of the ear is enlarged and the lower hollow is small. Whereas in normal people, it's the other way around. If you look at your ear, you'll find your is the upper hollow of the ear that's the smallest one and the lower hollow is larger. So his ear is kind of inverted uh, in the way the hollows work in the ear. And he told me that um, this is hereditary and I was able to, to dig up scientific papers on this and confirm that. So, so people have that, two... that have that, do they, does that coincide with the strange arrangement of teeth as well? Or the missing no, incisors? no, there's no correlation that we know of. Uh, too bad. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, and there's no kind of eth ethnic correlation with these things that we could see uh, particularly um, uh, by looking at the papers that are written on these things. And so what we did with these pieces of information, I thought to myself, this is very interesting. So if we're looking for a relative, perhaps a relative might have these two mar genetic markers, so to speak. So the next thing I did was look into the identity of the woman who was evasive, who the man had her phone number of, and she was, remember, she was found dead, uh, she was found, sorry, uh, living five minutes away from where he was found dead, five minutes walk. And um, so I I found her identity a little bit of detective work because it wasn't generally published in the newspapers at the time. It is now, the name is now public. Her name is Jo Thompson. And um, so I, I found out about her, um, looked up in, in, into her background. And unfortunately, she had like passed away in 2007. And I had found her identity in... Uh, 2009 so i missed her by by two years so that was a shame yeah, I, I was hoping i could talk to her so i then so i then thought well um does she have any descendants maybe i could talk to them because maybe she told them something <laughs> so that was my line of thinking so i found that she had a son and his name was robin thompson 
And uh, unfortunately, literally by the time I had found his identity, he had died literally uh, like two or three months before I, I found out who he was. So I just oh, missed him. So I was, I was really sad about that. Uh, obviously, he died because he died um, two years after his own mother. He obviously died died young. He had cancer. So, but uh, when I found his identity, I found out a little bit about him, and apparently, he was a professional ballet dancer. And that was very interesting because when I went back to the uh, inquest documents. It does say that um, the one of the features of the man that was found dead is he had extremely well-developed calf muscles that were high up the calf. And so there was speculation at the time in the 40s that one of the possible occupations of the man is maybe he was some sort of former dancer. Oh, okay. And so... When I found out the son's a dancer, uh, I thought, oh, this is interesting. And then I found that Joe Thompson wasn't, in fact, married at the time that she had the child. How old would the child have been when the guy was found dead? He would have been about one years old. So the timing Uh. was perfect. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, so what if this is the son of the Summerton man? Now, the, the nice thing about him being a professional ballet dancer is there were paper, uh, there were um, lots of photos of him in newspapers of the time. So he was quite a, um, uh, quite a good ballet dancer. He had um, danced for the Australian Ballet Company. He had danced for the um, ballet company in Basel in Switzerland and the Royal New Zealand Ballet Company. He had toured America in the 70s with uh, Rudolf Nureyev. And um, so there, 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 were, there were photos out there that I was able to obtain. And so uh, when I looked at these photos, uh, I lo- noticed, lo and behold, he's got these um, lateral incisors missing with no, with no gaps. So, uh, and a similar ear type to the Summerton man with the upper hollow very large and the lower hollow small. So I thought, wow, that's an amazing coincidence uh, that he's got both those features. He's, uh, his mother is single and she's got this, uh, and this guy's got her phone number. So, uh, so I'm kind of joining some dots here. So uh, there's either a connection there or it's absolutely an incredible coincidence. So, um, so what, I th- what I thought is, you know, what we've got to do is we've got to um, get at get at the Somerton man's DNA because unfortunately we don't have Robin's DNA um, because he was cremated when he died. However, we we I have been able to reconstruct it, and the way I did this way I did that was I found that he had a descendant, so he had uh, a daughter that I managed to track down. And uh, this is a kind of a twist to the story. Uh, about 10 years ago, we, we ended up getting married, but that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's another. Oh, really? That's a, yes. <laughs> wow. Uh, that's a funny twist. But anyway, so what I was able to do was get my wife's DNA and uh, her mother's and basically uh, subtract the two to get her father's DNA. Subtracting isn't the correct word. Um, uh, the correct uh, terminology, as we say, is we are 
phasing the DNA. So we're phasing out the mother uh, to just get the father's side of the DNA. So that that was um, a way we've been able to reconstruct that. So then my next step was to get try to get the Somerton man's DNA. So this is what we've been trying to do over the last few years. And it so happens, uh, uh, there's a part of the story I haven't told you, is that before the Somerton man was buried, the authorities of the time decided um, that they would like to make a plaster bust of the man in case somebody would come forward uh, wanting to identify the body and they couldn't because the body was buried, they could at least show a plaster bust. That's unusual. Yes. So they got a a guy uh, from our local state museum who was an expert in doing strange things like this. Uh, His name was Paul Lawson. And uh, I think Paul Lawson is 101 today and he's still alive. Uh, he's still got all his marbles. I've interviewed him many times, a great guy. And uh, he molded the plaster bust directly off the dead body. So he did it in two halves. So we, were you able to ask him if he had any memory of things he noticed about the body? Yes, I did. Uh, so, um, yes, so Paul Lawson um, said that the man had exceedingly big hands. So he had. Uh, average to small size feet for a guy that's kind of like 5'11 in height, but his hands were absolutely enormous. And I said, um, well, how enormous do you mean? And he said, um, and he, Paul Lawson showed me his hand. And Paul Lawson himself has huge hands because uh, he used, when he was younger, he used to be an amateur wrestler. And so he was a pretty big guy himself. And he said, well, if you were to put the Summerton man's hands up against mine, I would say that, you know, they'd be an inch bigger. So that's quite, those are big hands. So yeah, he noticed things like that, which were interesting, but that hasn't led us into any particular direction. So the nice thing about this plaster bust, though, uh, is that although it didn't lead to any identification, it still exists today in a museum here in Adelaide. Uh, and so I've been able to examine this plaster bus and I noticed that um, it's still got hairs stuck in it in the plaster. So this is uh, really interesting because it was molded directly off the man's body. The hairs are still embedded in there. Mm. And so it's a source of DNA. I found out that uh, a policeman had uh, a few years earlier tried to pull hairs out of this bus and have them DNA tested and didn't get anywhere with it. But what he had done is he had just basically pulled the hairs and, you know, at that age, they just snap and, you know, the roots are embedded in the plaster. And because this is now a historical um, object that's in a museum, you can't destroy the plaster bust. You know, you'd like to um, basically... um, slightly it's made of plaster of paris and you could in theory you know just put a little lemon juice and soften it and pull the hairs out but you 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 couldn't do that now because we're dealing with a historical object so what i did is i got a specialist at the university who specializes in doing uh, DNA testing of ancient hair samples, you know, like um, woolly mammoths that are found in ice and things like that. Um, 
And uh, she has had a lot of expertise with hair and uh, did, was able to do things I wouldn't be able to, th I wouldn't think of doing. And so I brought her in to look at the plaster bust and she used a very clever technique um, to actually pull out some hairs by their roots. Basically what she did is look for hairs that were clustered together and um, and if a hair was in the middle of a cluster, she could slide it out and, and not be restricted by the plaster. So she went very carefully with a magnifying glass around the plaster bus and was able to extract some hairs like that. So we've got we got a, a number of hairs with roots. We also got some some which snapped off, unfortunately, and so we just got some plain shaft as well. Um, now what we are able to do then. Uh, because our DNA lab at the uh, our university is um, is geared up for doing ancient DNA of old archaeological samples and uh, things like that, uh, there's the expertise there to extract uh, DNA from old uh, samples like this. So what we did is, uh, I think it was about slightly over five years ago now, we got one of the hairs with a root and did an extraction and we and uh, our lab got very little out of it but they were able to get one thing they found uh, the maternal haplogroup of uh, the uh, of the Summerton man's DNA was in the H group and that's all all we're able to get weren't able to get any uh, DNA sequence at all. It was all like a mess. So, and the reason for that is the concentration levels that uh, they were dealing with, that they were able to extract from this hair were extremely low and were below all the thresholds needed to uh, DNA sequence from this hair. So uh, we then made another breakthrough uh, with the hair uh, five years later, which was about, about last year now. What we did is we decided to take three of the hairs that had roots now and um, instead of just one to try and up the concentration level. So we had the benefit of now three hairs and the benefit of the techniques being more sensitive than five years earlier. And this was really interesting because we've now um, got the whole mitochondrial genome, okay, got the whole mitochondria, um, which is fantastic. And unfortunately, uh, but there's, there's a good and a bad to that. The uh, here's the so the good news is that what this means is that the DNA is extractable from the hair. It's very difficult to do, but but it's been done. And it shows that even though the man was embalmed in formaldehyde before he was buried, we actually got this clean mitochondrial DNA trace sequence that was unaffected by the formaldehyde. So that, because you see, there, okay. were, there were doubts whether we could actually even get any DNA because the form, formaldehyde would have corrupted the DNA. But what this is showing is that the, the formaldehyde embalming process was patchy in this case, and there are patches of his body that, that were missed, which is good for us, good news for us. Even if we were stuck with a completely uh, formaldehyde corrupted set of DNA, DNA uh, there, there are now modern techniques 
uh, able to solve that problem, but um, it, it makes the problem even harder. Now, the downside of the uh, mitochondrial DNA is it's exactly the DNA that you don't want. Uh, it's the DNA that actually doesn't tell us anything much. Because if you think about it, he's a man and his uh, mitochondrial DNA isn't passed down uh, to his descendants. So it doesn't help us with getting a match between Robin and Summerton Man. And it doesn't help us going the other way. It doesn't help us to identify who the Summerton Man is. So one thing I should explain is that um, if we had what are called the the autosomes of the man's DNA. And these are basically, uh, what the autosomes are, are basically, uh, they, they contain a mixture of, of DNA from both parents, okay? And this, it's this part of the DNA that is actually used in, by um, DNA websites like 23andMe and Ancestry, and uh, so this, these are websites that people like you and me can uh, just for, say, $100 decide we're going to swab ourselves, put our DNA on these websites, yeah. and it's like the Facebook of DNA. And so what well, we can one, do one, is... One quick question before that. Um, with the mitochondrial DNA, wouldn't that uh, potentially allow you to match someone that was his mother or his maternal line? All right, so... Uh, yeah... So can I just finish my train of thought and I'll get back to that point? Sure. Can I do that? So what I was basically saying is that, so the way we would propose to identify the Summerton man is to actually make use of these websites. If we had the right part of his DNA that's inherited from both mother and father and not just mother, we could go put his DNA up on uh, these kind of sites and we could find distant cousins of his and through the uh, family trees of those cousins, we can triangulate back to him and find a family tree where there's somebody that's gone missing in the 40s. And voila, that, that will hone in on him, home in on him. So uh, that, that's, the, that's the idea. And this technique is known. It's called um, forensic genealogy. And this is the exact technique that uh, adopted children use to find who their real parents are. So just by using your own DNA, you can trace your own parents using this method. And it is a method um, that is being used in the USA today to solve cold cases as well. And there has been some success with that in the USA. There have been some big cases cracked, like um, the Golden State Killer case recently was, uh, was one that used that technique. So, um, so I thought of uh, doing this, you know, uh, you know, ten years ago, uh, before uh, before this, uh, uh, these techniques were really known and had become hot. Um, but we didn't really have the technology ten years ago to extract uh, DNA from hair and from old hair like that uh, to get the whole genome and. Uh, even today, we are only on the edge of it, as I'll explain in a minute. So uh, that's the downside of us only getting the mitochondrial DNA, that we're not able to uh, put this DNA on one of these genealogical websites and find his cousins. We really need the 
autosomes for that. Now, going back to your question, why can't the mitochondrial DNA help us at all is because what that does is it finds anyone that's not only anyone that's connected to his mother, but it finds anyone connected to his mother's mother and mother's mother's mother and so on. Because it, it's the, what that DNA represents is the whole maternal line going back, who knows, two or 3000 years. And uh, so anyone that's descended from any of those women over the last 3000 years will be a hit. And so you'll get thousands of them. So that's the problem, why you can't use that. But if you, if you correlate it to a period of time, and you can say, okay, this is at most three generations back or 10 generations back, and that would give you like a smaller subset or a pool of people that it could be. And maybe you could find out who their family is and trace it forward like that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very difficult. <laughs> uh, the, the, you're basically dealing with such a large data set here that um that that that's a that's a tr very tricky proposition what you're uh, suggesting there what you really need are the parts of the dna that are used on those genealogical websites because the nice thing about those is they basically connect you um quite nicely to anyone that's a, a first cousin second cousin up to about fourth or fifth cousin once you start getting to fourth or fifth cousin, though, even that is very distant and very difficult to do forensic genealogy on. You really want um, to find third and second cousins. Once you get down to that level, it becomes a lot easier to, to identify who someone is. Fifth cousin is almost like a stranger. It's, 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 it's a very tough problem. So yeah, so that's uh, where we're at at the moment. Uh, so uh, now uh, I just want to say that the DNA uh, that goes up on these um, genealogical websites like 23andMe and um, Ancestry, uh, they use uh, something like 800,000 markers. And these markers are called SNPs or SNPs. And these SNPs are small segments of DNA that actually give information about the person's physiology, about, say, the color of their hair and eyes, um, their ethnicity, um, perhaps genetic diseases they've got and things like that. So they, they, they give a whole ton of information about the person as well as the potential to connect to distant cousins and even close relatives if you're lucky enough to find any. So that's enormous and uh, if we now compare that to, say, what police use for catching a criminal, the standard uh, DNA kit for uh, forensic tests uh, in criminal cases is there's usually, they usually only use somewhere around 20, it depends on uh, which country we're talking about, but uh, usually somewhere around 23 markers. And they aren't even these SNPs. They're, they're a different uh, um, concept. They, they use what's called STRs. So these STRs are kind of uh, repeats in the DNA. It's a sort of, um, it's almost like uh, thinking that uh, it's like uh, the DNA has stuttered, if you like. So they look for these stutters, uh, 23 of these stuttering markers in the DNA. And this is how you um, say uh, match a criminal to some DNA left at a crime scene. And 
this uh, this is a completely different ball game from that. Um, uh, and with with the crime scene DNA, uh, you're very uh, it's very unforgiving because uh, you're only looking at um, twenty three markers. So there isn't any room for error. You don't want your DNA to be contaminated or um, or there to be any losses, etc. So you've got to be very precise, and they're very precise protocols with those sorts of forensic DNA analyses. But in our case, when we're doing the gene- genealogical type approach, what people don't understand is uh, because we're now dealing with eight hundred thousand bits of information. Uh, it's actually more forgiving. There's more room for error. In fact, there have been cases solved uh, in the USA where uh, the DNA has been degraded so much that um, the investigators didn't actually have all 800,000 of those markers. They only had 10% of them. So they only had about 80,000 of what they needed and yet they were able to uh, do an identification and get what they need. Gotcha. So, uh, so it's a much more forgiving technique. And, and think of it like this. Uh, if I, say, transmit a computer code, uh, a piece of computer code across the internet, and there could be just one tiny uh, transmission error, and you and you are the receiver. You try and run that piece of code. You run this program. The whole program won't work just because it has one tiny error. It's dead. Whereas if I send you a video across the internet and you watch this video, and this video has you know hundreds of errors, uh, bit errors, it doesn't really matter because uh, you know this video has got millions and millions of bits of information and, you know, a few hundred, uh, you know, random errors here and there, you don't even notice it. And in engineering, we have a word for this. So we call it graceful degradation of information. And so with this whole genealogical approach, we're dealing with a, a graceful degradation. And um, uh, so, and it's, uh, and it's this concept that, unfortunately, um, uh, authorities uh, and um, you know police jurisdictions around the world don't quite understand that yet. That this is this is the case, and this is a different ball game. And so this is why we're not seeing a, a lot of uh, uh, police jurisdictions around the world uh, rapidly taking up this new kind of technology. But as as it gets more and more out there and people understand this concept of graceful degradation, um, I think we'll see more of this in the future. So on this point, uh, what we were able to do is we, uh, from this hair, we did in fact last year actually get some SNPs, SNPs from the Summerton man's hair, but we only got about 2% of the 800,000 that we need. And 10% is the lowest amount anybody in the USA has ever used to actually crack a case. And so we're about five times lower than that. So we're, we're really kind of struggling here. So there are possibilities that, you know, we could run the tests again, um, you know, in a few years time and, and get a much bigger percentage, or uh, we could get uh, exhumation before then. 
But well, I'm gonna, I, quick, I feel quick it's here. within reach. It's within reach and we can get there. Sorry, over to you. Yeah. Oh, sorry, a lot of threads here. Um, have you spoken to your wife about, you know, her parents and have they ever said anything? You know, did she ever ask her dad, which was this person's son, uh, you know, about his parents and all that? I mean, what did you get from, from that? Yeah, so basically it seems that her dad didn't know anything about this and um, assumed that the father that raised him in the end was his real father. And as far as we know, that's all he knew to the day he died. Okay. Also, we know that he didn't even know about the Summerton Man case. He, were, he, only, he only even heard about it one year before he died. Oh, wow. So from... Um, information I've received from the family. So, um, so yeah, he, he, he was, wasn't in the know. And he was the sort of guy, uh, probably in real life, uh, that if he had known, he was the kind of guy that would bury his head in the sand and probably not want to know about it. <laughs> gotcha. Um, the, um, these, these, um, phenotypical abnormalities, you know, the ear having, I guess, the reversed or a different kind of hollows than normal, you know, overly large hands, uh, strange dental structure. Do they correlate with any diseases? Is that known today? Or do they correlate with any other, you know, high blood pressure, low blood pressure, any other things that may give you a clue as to how he died? Um, no, uh, we don't know if there are any correlations between these features and uh, different diseases. There are many correlations between SNPs in people's DNA and different genetic diseases. And these are very well known and documented. So once we do get his whole genome one day, we will be able to um, look at all his SNPs and see which genetic disorders he had a predisposition to. So that, that will be a possibility. Um, though, you know, many, um, you know, perfectly fit athletes even today, just wake up one morning and are found dead. It still it still happens today, and the re, re, the re usual reason is that the, they've uh, had a heart murmur, and um, and they just pass away. Uh, so this can even happen to extremely fit people, and it's possible something like that happened to him too, because he he was noted as looking extremely physically fit. You know, he had a very narrow waist and strong broad shoulders. And for his age, that, that, that looked pretty good. Now, the interesting, but trying to correlate other features like sizes of hands and, and things like that with different disorders, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, work has not really been done on that uh, in the research world uh, to kind of correlate all these features. Well, the, but, the reason I ask is he had three, at least very yeah. distinct features. So within yes. one of those. Now, in, in, in terms of research, these things um, haven't been researched. So we, we don't really know the answers to those, but what I, I want to bring it up, um, bring this point up because what you've raised is a very important question. And this is something that is happening all in the area of biomedical informatics, because what we're seeing now is a huge, in the research world, a huge surge in the use of AI and deep learning techniques um, on big medical data sets. And so 
uh, I think we're going to see more and more of this sort of happening uh, over the years, and we will find correlations between uh, different um, features and different medical disorders by using uh, what's called big data and using deep learning on big data. So I think uh, that's yet to come, and we will see more of this in the future. What's um, it's a strange question. What's more important to you if you could only have one thing to know how he died or to know who he is? That's a very question, good question. And I've uh, um, always said to myself, what's more important is knowing who he was. I'm not really interested in how he died. Oh, really? Okay. Because hmm. in a sense, it doesn't really matter. What really matters is somebody's name. Because once you've got somebody's name, you can pull out their whole history. Uh, you can find out who they were, what they were doing there, et cetera, et cetera. If I just found out how he died and didn't have his name, it wouldn't be that interesting. But that's my opinion. <laughs> yeah. When, again, what, so now going back to the beginning, like, you know, I see it with different eyes. What year was he found? 1948. So how would he, and, and he was found in England, if he was American, I mean, were there travel logs of, you know, if someone came from America to England, it would have been a very difficult trip. There wasn't really any commercial aviation or anything. So what's, uh, uh, you know, have you looked there? Yes, there are plenty of uh, ship's passenger logs, but it's uh, like a needle in a haystack. Hmm. It's, it's, okay. it's, it's a, that's a very difficult problem to work through those. Okay, even with all these distinct features and... Uh, there probably wouldn't be a lot of, uh, I don't know how many people were coming over, but. Uh, hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, uh, yeah. Don't forget there were a lot of uh, American troops around in Australia in the forties. Um, so there, there would have been quite a big, um, there'd, there'd be quite a lot. Okay. So one of my last questions, what's required to get an exhumation? Do you have like a checklist and you're, you're hunting down all the, are you getting all the requirements so that it could be exhumed or at least a tooth taken from him or something, or a hair from his head. So are you saying if we were to exhume him, what would we use? Would we use the tooth or something? Is that what you're asking? Well, two, two questions. Is it even possible to have him exhumed? You know, if you do A, B, C, D, E, or prove this or that, can you then have oh. him exhumed? Like, have you examined the legal method by which you could get it done? And then if you did, what would you take? You know, what would you do? What would you look for? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... I think it, everything is in place and an exhumation could be done. It's just that more than one different authority has to be satisfied. And then uh, they're kind of getting all those uh, clay pigeons lined up, so to speak, um, is, is, is a difficult act. It's just difficult over here. It's just the politics of how it works here. So um, now given that... Um, let's say hypothetically we did do an exhumation uh, what are the sorts of things that could be done so probably one could you know do a whole body scan um, a whole CT scan of the body because it would be good to get um, his whole dental configuration recorded um, and any fractures in his bones that might give a clue because uh, if one looks at old wool records etc um, if it correlates with a known injury that somebody's previously had that this can help with identification 
we can do what's called bone isotope test. And this can, um, can uh, locate where somebody was born. So that's also useful information. So that looks at strontium isotopes. Uh, uh, I'll come back to the point about strontium in a minute. There's something else I forgot to tell you. But, uh, and then of course there's the DNA. Um, now we probably wouldn't get DNA from this man, particular man's teeth because um, it's recorded in the inquest that his uh, back teeth are missing. He's only got his front teeth. And usually when you want to extract uh, DNA from teeth, you usually go for the molars. Not, not the incisors. So what might be better is to use a piece of uh, inner ear bone or something like that to extract his DNA. Um, and then uh, assuming one can get uh, those 800,000 SNPs that you need to go on a genealogical website, that would uh, be a sure way, to, uh, the, the great pathway to finding his identity. So those, those are the kinds of things one could do with, with an exhumation. Is, you know, since your wife essentially is his granddaughter, probably, is there any way to uh, to assert that and to, you know, to speed along the exhumation or make it more possible because of it? Uh, possibly. One could, um, like when we do our next test from here, and hopefully we'll get more than 2% of the SNPs we need next time, even if it's not enough, um, uh, it might be enough to show that there's a correlation with my wife. But um, we'll, we'll wait and see. Uh, these, are, these are open questions. Now, one, uh, so I want to bring out a couple of scientific points here. One, listeners might be wondering why it is that we can get this whole mitochondrial genome so fantastically, and why it is that uh, the nuclear DNA, the other parts of the DNA are, are so difficult to get at. Well, what's go what's actually going on there and what's going on there is it it's just um the luck of nature that uh, human cells tend to have uh many copies of the mitochondria uh, so each cell has you know perhaps over a thousand copies whereas the the nuclear dna um might there might be only um you know two or three copies and so when we're dealing with um old hair samples, um, and uh, um, we've only using three roots, the concentration levels we're getting are very small for the, um, for the nuclear DNA, but for the mitochondria, it, because there's more copies of them, uh, we're getting just enough to, to get the whole mitochondrial genome out. So I just wanted to explain that's why there is that difference. Are you able to revisit the plaster cast and, you know, ex extract more hairs? If you do so, do you think you'll get more of the SNP profile? Well, I took the precaution of when I first went to go to the bus to actually get 50 hairs. So I've still got, you know, over 40 left um, hidden away. Um, so hopefully I won't need to go back. Um, if I, if uh, I do need to go back, hopefully I will, be able to access it again. Okay. But because of the way, um, you know, things change, rules change, uh, you know, with time, who knows whether one will get access again. So that's why I took the precaution of taking a lot of hairs the first time. Well, if you opened it up and then restored it to look, you know, to the eye to be the same as before, I mean, why would that not be allowed? 
you know, it's historically significant, but then again, for people to appreciate the significance is a lot is in the looking. If the, again, if you were to open up a small spot that wasn't in normal view and then restore it, would that be a way to get in, into the interior of it somehow? Um, oh, uh, there, there isn't any difficulty with getting the hairs out. We, we, we do it by pulling in a very careful way, as I explained previously. I was just talking about whether one can even access the, um, the, the bust in the future. Who knows what will happen to the rules? Rules change. <laughs> right, yeah, they do, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's why I took the precaution of uh, making sure I got 50 in the first place. So we, we've still got 40 hairs to work with. Now, not all of those 40 have got roots, but, um, but I'm hoping we've, we've got enough uh, to do something with it again in the future. What does your uh, your wife think about all this? That it's you know it's likely to be her grandfather and everything. Does it? Uh, she's ag- agnostic about that, uh, whether that, that's her grandfather or not. Um, and uh, her attitude is, well, she would like this all to go ahead because she would like to know what the truth is either way. But what about so, yourself? Do you feel like you you just need to see this through to the end, no matter how long it takes, or are there? Yeah, like, why have you uh, spent so much time and effort on this mystery? What what's captivated you by it for so long? Well, it's like any any research project um, that we do in academia. What makes a good researcher is you 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 grab your topic and you you see it through to the end. Uh, you persist. Um, if we didn't persist, uh, <laughs> we wouldn't get anywhere. And uh, the way I see it is, is that the, the, the techniques we build up along the way uh, when we're solving a very difficult case like this to identify somebody, the kind of the software tools we develop, the techniques we develop, uh, these are all uh, goodies that can be used for future cases. There's lots of cases in the world where we need uh, better tools for human identification. Because don't forget, there are natural disasters, tsunamis, all sorts of things that are happening in the world all the time where human identification uh, is needed. And there are, um, and uh, this is not just one isolated case. It's an extremely difficult case. And that's why I like it, because it's through a difficult case that the science gets um, honed and improved and we, we develop the engineering tools we need. Oh, one, one last thing that came to mind. Have you looked to see if there's missing persons cases, you know, from the U.S. about that time? Uh, no, we haven't done that. that. That's an interesting thought, but, um, yeah, I, I don't have the resources myself to look at that because that will be a huge number when you, when you look into that. Uh, if I was to get some assistance... <laughs> To look at that sort of thing from somebody in the U.S., I would, I would certainly welcome it. Hmm. Okay, well, very good, Derek. What's the best way for people to find out more about, you know, your work in general, and then uh, to find out updates on this mystery as you work on it? Um, I, I guess my website. Okay. All right. So we'll include that in the show notes. And uh, any last comments? I mean, it's really cool to to talk to someone that's working on a mystery. You even have the voice for it to narrate it. You know, so it's it's been a cool experience to interview you. But uh, any last comments? Anything you want to mention before we go? Um, oh gosh, you put me on the spot. I can't. Uh, no, I can't think of anything. <laughs> um, no uh, a last comment. Yeah, I, I'd just like to say that I think uh, 
this work kind of illustrates um, what we do in the academic world in a, in a university. What we, what we do is we um, work on problems, difficult problems, and hopefully in a multidisciplinary manner. And the problem itself isn't necessarily the goal. It's the kind of tools and techniques that we pick up along the way uh, to help society as a whole. And uh, I think there's, that's, a, that's a message about uh, universities and academic research and how we operate. I think, um, I think it's good for people to know that. Yeah, no, it's true. Cases like this uh, make you really work your hardest to figure them out. And in doing so, like you said, this, these methods could be used on other cases to help other people and in all kinds of ways we can't even imagine. So it's really cool that you're doing this work. Thank you. Well, very good, Derek. Thanks for coming on the podcast and uh, you know talking about this, and I appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.